0: Thing about it. Michael was talking about Sarah getting through the epistles in 13 weeks, and I think we're doing 12 weeks just on Galatians. So <laughs> she's quite incredible for a lot of reasons, but uh, that'll be a great class. And I encourage you, if you're not doing this, get into the habit of coming an hour earlier on Sunday morning. It's not that much of a difference of your time frame. We do have things for kids going on at that time. Nursery's open, so if, even if you have small kids, you can bring them um, that is a great way to get connected to the Word of God. And then Wednesday night, there's not a better place to be than right here at wassa First Assembly. There are several great options for you. And uh, just encourage you to, to dig into that and to be a part of that. One of the things we want to try to do as a church, too, is provide you with a lot of resources. So there's a video about Convoy of Hope that will be on our website, and there will also be... Um, on our app. There will also be one from Daryl Wooten, our district superintendent, as he talks about the Roe v. Wade decision and what happened there a little bit that you can watch. A last thing I want to tell you about, and we printed off a hundred of these today, if you want printed copies, this is the Assemblies of God position paper. And you can find all of the position papers that deal with, with many current issues. Everything from abortion to homosexuality to gambling to uh, just a variety of things that are current issue topics. You can find all of them if you will go very simply. You can remember this. We are an Assembly of God church. How many of you knew that? We didn't surprise any of you, did we? <laughs> I thought this was something else. No, we're, we're an Assembly of God and proud of it. And, uh, we're thankful for every other group that's out there, but we think we're part of the best ones, so that's all good. Uh, so if you'll go to AG. Assembly of God, ag.org. That will bring up the National Assembly of God webpage. If you go over to the section called Beliefs, click on that. You'll see position paper, and they're all listed right there. They're all downloadable. This one is six pages. It's called The Sanctity of Human Life, Abortion, and Reproductive Issues. And it has at the back of it six Christian actions. And we should earnestly pray for intervention and the wisdom to resolve uh, to resist abortion and questionable uh, research and experimentation, should pre- provide biblical and moral instruction in their homes and all possible public forums. So there there's six things there of how to respond in a good, positive way. I highly recommend this article along with the others that are there, and that's a good place to go just to find out more information, ag.org. Should be able to remember that. You go to Assembly of God Church, AG. If you're a guest today, we're Assemblies of God. You can look up ag.org and find out what that means, what we believe in our 16 fundamental truths and our stance on a lot of different things. That's all there for you. So I encourage you to go and to check that out. So we're up to the third sermon on Galatians. I think next week I'll be here, but Pastor RJ is going to be preaching for us. And then through July and August, some of the different staff are going to mix in on different sermons. I'm really looking forward to that. Looking forward to Pastor RJ preaching next week. Amen. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And we're looking at the book of Galatians. We are finished chapter 1 last week, going into chapter 2 now. And by the way, just in case you think we're really slow I've seen some churches where the series on Galatians may take up to 20 weeks or more. So we're, we're kicking in there and trying to get after it as fast as we can. It'll be about 12 weeks for us. But uh, Galatians is a foundational writing because it confronts a, uh, a mindset that wants to add something to salvation other than faith in Jesus Christ. That destroys our faith. When it's Jesus plus something, we're in trouble. The series title is called Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In him, we have all that we need. Now, I've said it last week, and I'll repeat it throughout this series. When you become a follower of Christ, it transforms your life. And there is a value and a need for obedience to the word of God. We're not putting that as that's not necessary or unimportant because the truth is this. Grace will never lead you towards sin. If someone says, well, I'm under grace so I can do whatever I want to, they don't understand grace. Grace puts you on a path of holiness. But it does it for a different reason. It's not because you have to, but it's because you want to. If I heard this once, I heard it probably at least 100 or 200 times as a kid growing up. My father saying to me, Bruce, you don't have to go to church, you get to go to church. It's a privilege. We never had a discussion, never had a vote. But it was a matter of, in view of all that God has done for you, what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, because of what God's done for you, you should offer your entire body as a living sacrifice, everything you do. And God's not calling you to die for him, but he is calling you to live for him, to make a difference with your life. So, the oldest letter that Paul wrote, Galatians, many scholars believe Jewish people are trying to change it and the gospel tells us we're saved by what? We're kept by what? We're transformed by what? See, we can't bring anything to the equation. If I get good enough or if I work hard enough, maybe he'll love me then. Listen, God already loves you. That's not the issue. The issue is, will you accept what he has for you? And I'll come back to this at the end. The first week we talked about this, that, that grace requires us receiving and accepting God's gift to us. Grace brings liberty. Legalism brings bondage. Grace is the center of the gospel, and grace is undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor and blessings and gifts from heaven. So, in the passage here, here's what it reads Galatians 2 1 through 10, the NIV today says 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them, them being the church leaders, the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seemed to be important, Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearances. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So this is kind of a, a, a story synopsis. You can find the parallel to it, and you need to actually read Acts chapter 15 for today's message and next week's that tells about what was going on in the church world. Jesus had died, resurrected, ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit had uh, been poured out upon mankind. And then there was this pursuit of, of how should we live, what should we do? And... The more people that are involved in the process, the more probability there is of something not being quite right, getting off base. We have to continually depend upon the guidance of the Holy Spirit, even today, for what we do. Not, They didn't just need to do that back then, and now, well, we've got the Bible, so we don't need it anymore. Because the problem is, we can easily misunderstand the Bible. One of the keys to understanding scripture is this you have to understand the context with, with, with which it is written. You have to contextualize why was this person saying this? What did they mean by it? Now, when you do that, here's the danger of that. If you're not careful, you can go too far, a different direction, and change. So, it's very important that the Holy Spirit guide you in your understanding of God's word. I've seen a lot of people take the Word of God, well, by, just, just, yeah. Almost all heresy that comes into the church is someone misusing the Word of God to make their point. So you have to make sure that you get it right. That's been my prayer for, I don't know, the last 10 years or whatever. And, and, and thankfully, God's faithful and he helps. Sometimes my own nature gets in the way a little bit still. But every day my prayer is this, God, help me get it right today. Help me hear your voice and follow you today. Don't let me misstep. Don't let me mis- misdirect somewhere. So in the story, here's what we see happening. First thing that we see is God directed Paul to return to Jerusalem. Now, Paul had been faithfully ministering the gospel among the Gentiles for several years. He indicates it was 14 years later before he was there before his conversion 14 years from that point to now that he goes back to Jerusalem doesn't say but it kind of uh alludes to the fact that there wasn't visits between these two points because he refers back to when he went and he says that was 14 years ago when he went to see Peter and stayed at his house for 15 days and he says so for that whole time now I've been preaching the gospel ministering to the Gentiles, and. Um, Now Paul returns to Jerusalem because God revealed that Paul should go there by revelation. I I, I want you to get this this point of understanding in your heart that God delights in revealing himself to you. God is a God of revelation. Now now look, I think sometimes we get messed up because we think for God to give us revelation, it's got to be like a bright light knocking us to the ground, and wow, that was incredible. Or we think that there's, you know, this audible voice, and those things can happen. That's God's call. But typically, he speaks to us in some very clear and specific ways. One, most importantly, through his word. Can I tell you this morning, please hear me clearly, if you're not reading the word regularly, don't expect revelation from God. Why would he take 1,600 years, 40 different authors from all kind of place and situation, men and women involved in the storyline, and all of these things happen, and then go, I never mind about that. He primarily speaks to you through his word. And the more you read and study his word, the better your revelation of him will be. Secondly, he speaks to you through the Holy Spirit's work in your heart, and this often is founded upon a prayer life. The more you pray, the more you hear. Now, now, God is gracious, and he intervenes and does things that that, that are beyond what we could. The fact that he inter, that he reveals himself at all is incredible. But we have to position ourselves to receive that. Then often he'll speak through someone that, that, that is a brother or sister in Christ in a way that will help you get affirmation to direction that you think is in your heart. Um, this is my opinion from experience occasionally, if you've got a pure heart and you're living right, the affirmation may be one of don't do something, but more times than not, it's going to be encouraging you to do what's right. Now, sometimes, if we'll just step back and look objectively at life, we don't have to pray real hard about what God's calling us to do when he's calling us to do something that is right, that is good, that advances his kingdom. You don't really have to pray real long and hard about that. That's, that's God. The devil would never... Try to persuade you to do something that is beneficial for the kingdom of God, and if you get nudged that direction, it's God. Go for it. Okay, you're in a good spot there. Paul's companions here were Barnabas. Let me just quick mention him real quickly. One of my favorite characters of the New Testament. Not a big player. Not a lot of splash of his name in the headlines. But the word Barnabas was his nickname, and Barnabas means son of encouragement. Uh, the one who would come alongside and encourage people. And every time we see Barnabas, he's encouraging somebody. What a great storyline, amen? When the gospel came to the Gentiles in Antioch, it was Barnabas who was sent to encourage them in their faith in Acts chapter 11. Then from, from the earliest days, Barnabas was associated with The Gentile believers. It was Barnabas who enlisted Paul to help minister at the church in Antioch. And the two of them worked together, not only in teaching, but also in helping the poor. Again, Acts chapter 11, you can read those stories. Barnabas accompanied Paul on the first missionary trip. And he saw God bless on the gospel that they preached. It was Barnabas who encouraged young John Mark After he had dropped out of the ministry and incurred the displeasure of Paul. Paul wasn't happy about that. This was Paul's protege, John Mark. And John Mark um, got homesick, whatever you want to call it, and said, I'm out. I don't want to do this. And Paul said, you know, basically, if you want to like a movie quote, at that point, basically, Paul said, you're dead to me. Pretty much for real. It's like, I have no use for you ever again in my life. And through all of that, Barnabas was coming along going, hey, it's okay, he didn't really mean it. And they worked it out, and toward the end of Paul's life, he commends Mark and thanks him for his friendship. Isn't it amazing how God works things out? Titus is another one of the guys in the story here. He was a Gentile believer who worked with Paul and apparently was one to Christ through the apostles' ministry. He was a product of the apostles' work, and he's taken to Jerusalem kind of as exhibit A. Here's a Gentile, and he's put his faith in God. So that's Paul and Barnabas. And to notice this, and I I, I looked at several different versions to find the one that gave the best overall feel of what the wording was. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I have resources where I can study and look and see what the Greek words are and what they mean and look at, scholars' opinions about things. And most scholars would agree that in this passage right here, unfortunately, the wording doesn't fit real well with our English vocabulary in some spots. And so it gives a little bit of a possibly a jaded message. If here's where it happens, we go, oh, yeah, I heard that. You know, have you ever heard somebody say something and you heard what they didn't say as much as what they did say or the way they said it? Now when we're reading this passage, if we're not careful, we'll read it through our lens and we'll get the wrong picture. So I'm going to try to give you a little bit of, of kind of the way that it would have been understood by the people in the time in the writing of the book of Galatians. Paul, and this may come up, it will come up later, let me just hit it real quick right here, Paul is very thoughtful, strategic, and kind in his way that he approaches this matter. Uh, you'll read in whichever version you have. I'm doing the NIV, and it, it, it talks about uh, those who seem to be leaders. And, and if we were doing that, we'd put air quotes around the word seem, those who seemed to be leaders. Oh, yeah, I heard that. Th- that's not what he's saying there. And part of his writing, reason for writing it this way was to also minimize the feelings of the Judaizers who put the apostles above everybody else. I think one of the interesting things when we get to heaven that we're going to find out is that there are only three members of the Trinity. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And listen to me, there's not even a close number four. I know that we joke around, or we, but, but here's the problem. We should give honor where honor is due, but we need to be careful that we never overextend that to a place that is is inappropriate and that causes us to put our eyes on man more than on God. When you put your eye on any person, you are going to be disappointed. If you don't have your eyes on God the right way, you can be disappointed with him too. Sometimes he has to lead us through disappointment. But when you put your eyes on man, you're building on a very faulty foundation. So Paul is saying here, he's trying not to, to, he's trying to use words that make sure that the other apostles aren't elevated to this place of of papal authority. That's referring to Catholic churches if you don't understand that. Um, When Paul goes to see them, it says he went to them privately, verse number two to tell them what he'd been preaching. In other words, he didn't throw it out on Facebook. He didn't take an ad out in the Jerusalem Gazette. He went and talked to them personally about what he thought. You know what I've discovered in life? A lot of times when we have a little bit of information, we can become extremely dangerous. We fill in the blanks. And we assume things and whatever. And we can get so worked up. And sometimes all of our anger is founded in wrong assumptions. Aren't you glad that Paul, in this case, went and talked to the church leaders, specifically Peter, James, James. In John, by the way, just a little. Make sure you understand Bible history. It's not a hard thing to figure out. But the James that is being talked about here is not the James that was one of the twelve. This is James, the brother of Jesus. You may you may be saying, "Well, Pastor, how do you know that?" Because in Acts chapter twelve, James the apostle is executed. Peter is. Given freedom by the angels. Now, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a whole sermon right there. But there's a point of illustration for me to give you right now. Be careful that you don't position yourself in life, that you have to think that you can figure it all out and connect all the dots. Or otherwise, everything's off. Why did James die? Why did Peter live? I don't know. Well, hold hold on, we gotta figure that out. No, we don't. No, we don't. You're gonna waste a lot of energy, a lot of time on things that are not knowable, and you're gonna wind up in a place of confusion, potentially one of arrogance. You know, I, I haven't heard it in a long time, thank God, But there used to be people that when something tragic happened, they had this almost, from my perspective, flippant response like, well, if you'd had enough faith. Are you kidding me? You think that a condescending attitude is a fruit of the Spirit? Think there's a place for that in God's kingdom? Well, all I know is what I see. Well, you don't know that much. Now, if that offended you right there, you probably needed to hear it. I don't know that much. You know what I learn in life? The older I get, the less I realize I know. And I don't know all the details, but here's what I do know. God is faithful. God is good. And I I will bank on that for all of my life. Why did James die and Peter live? I don't know. Well, James, he really wouldn't have been that significant to the church that he lived. And Peter was more. Are you kidding me? You think you have the ability to comprehend that? I don't mean to be harsh right now, but we get caught up sometimes in all of this foolishness that tries to show how intelligent or how how much we know. Last I read, we walk by faith, not by sight. Let me give you another word for Sight not by understanding, not what I can see, not what my senses can re- reveal to me. We walk by faith, which is a spiritual journey. I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to believe his word. I'm going to believe for healing. I'm going to believe in faith, but I'm not going to allow situations to deter me from following him. They go and meet with them privately. And, uh, they tell them the gospel they 've been preaching, and the church leaders did not require Titus to be circumcised and it put an end to the rumors of division among the church leaders. The Judaizers were kind of throwing these stories out there well Paul's preaching one gospel, but Peter, James, and John are preaching a different one, and they 're really divided and they 're not together at all so paul 's plan to to confront that deception and that destruction was to go to Peter, James, and John and say, hey, guys, here's what I'm doing. What do you think about it? Now, let me me talk about a topic that no one likes to talk about real quick, but it's important, and I'll be very uh, thoughtful and careful in my process here. I have it written out kind of word for word, so I get this right, okay? Circumcision. Circumcision was cutting the foreskin of a male child Preferably at eight days of age. That was the way it should happen. Sometimes it happened afterwards. Uh, It was something that was a visible representation. A visible representation. Something that was visible of an invisible reality. Let me give you an example. That is what communion is for us. When we partake of the bread, it's a visible piece of bread that we can see. We take of the juice, it's a little cup of juice that we can see, that we can taste. They're visible things, but they represent an invisible reality. Don't you wish that you could look at somebody and just by looking you could tell if they were a believer or not and if they're really committed to following Christ or not? Anybody ever been fooled? I have. By vision, I look at somebody and they look pious and righteous and they've got the right look and whatever and they they look that way and then you hear them somewhere out and whoo, no wrong, wrong read. You ever see somebody and you think, well, there's no way they can be saved. Look at them. Then you find out they are fully devoted to following Jesus Christ with a pure heart. We can't judge by appearance. Circumcision was this visible visible representation of an invisible reality. It was a physical reminder of a spiritual commitment to complete obedience to God. But here's the problem. The, The Judaizers had made the example more important than the reality. They were all hung up on communion and how you do it and make sure it's done right. But they weren't in communion with God. They were focused on circumcision and getting that right. It has to be done here and this way and just like this. But they weren't concerned about a heart of obedience. Romans 2, 25, Paul writes this. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. Wow. He says if you're not obedient to the word of God, your circumcision is of no effect. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Wow, what a powerful word. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew. If he is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Here's the problem. The substance had become more important, or the, or the symbol, I should say, had become more important than the substance. Substance is always more important than a symbol. So now here's what happened. They go and they talk to Peter, James, and John. They don't make Titus. uh, They don't ask him to be circumcised. They say, hey, if he's he's following Christ, full of faith, that's all that counts. But then, and it's very interesting words here, verse 4 and 5 talk about this. It says, there were those who came, and uh, they were false brothers, but they had infiltrated our ranks They knew all the code words, the secret handshakes. They knew when to say, praise God, brother. And they knew how to do all the right kind of stuff. But their purpose for being there was not righteous or godly. They were there with destructive intent. They entered as friends, but they had the motive of an enemy. I don't have time to dive into this very much, but the Bible talks a lot about friends and what the purpose of friends are. If if that word's not even used, the inference often is this in Galatians chapter 6 later on. When you're a friend of someone and you are spiritual, your job is to restore that one in a spirit of humility. Proverbs talks a lot about friends. When Proverbs talks about friends, the purpose of friends is always for improvement. Now, the action of friends can be varied. Sometimes the action of a friend can even be harsh. But the purpose is for improvement. These guys here, it says, they came in with the purpose of destruction. It says they were spying on the freedom of the Gentiles. Look what it says and they wanted to destroy it. Isn't that crazy? They were wanting to make the Gentile Christians spiritual slaves. You know, I was thinking about this, and I, I don't know that it's 100% accurate, but it's highly, high percentage accurate. Most of the time when people are trying to, to, to um, people in the church when they're trying to beat up on other Christians, when they're trying to, uh, to, to, to manipulate other people, it all boils down to one word in my experience, and I've seen a lot of it, and the word is control. And control means if I'm controlling you by the very nature of that reality, I'm the superior one. A spirit of humility comes in and says, Let's talk about this, look at this, and it might even be some point of disagreement, but let's work through it so that we're both in a better place when we're done with the discussion. I'm very sad to tell you that frequently in my role in the district, often I've gone to churches and I've seen deacons and pastors who were so entrenched against one another. We should all have our ideas. We all should hear from God. We should work for consensus and get together. And our differences make us stronger. They'll be the last point of this sermon, not weaker. I'm not saying we all have to be identical. But when we're walking in opposition to one another, that doesn't please God. And I've actually gone to meetings where I've said, is there anything we can do, anything that can happen for you people to be able to work together? And I've had people look me in the face and say, that will not happen. And I've said, God, help us. How do we get to the point where our personal agenda, our personal ideas are so elevated that we will not tolerate anyone who veers off the path from us in any minute level? These Judaizers come in, and they're trying to make the Gentiles second-class They're trying to tell them, well, you don't really have what you think you have because you haven't done what we've done yet, and you need to get that done, and you probably still won't be as good as us. You're not going to read that in Scripture. That's me doing a little bit of characterization. But you will find that they were trying to put them into slavery. And if there's ever a point where I want to applaud the Apostle Paul, it's in verse 5. We did not give in to them for a moment. We didn't even think about it. Now, i got to be honest with you. Some versions will read that. And it has to do with the Greek syntax there. And some think that he says we, we thought about it for a minute, but then we said no. But I think most um, interpreters read it this way. We did not even give it to them for a moment. And here's why. So that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Paul and his companions did not yield to them at all. And his reasoning why was to protect the gospel. Now, look at this, though. What was intended by the Judaizers to be a split, a faction, a division was used by God because people had the right spirit, the right attitude. In verse 6 on down, Paul says, as for those who seem to be important, whatever they, they were make no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearances. It can seem right there, again, that he may be disrespectful In the English language, in the Greek language, not so much. He's making a very clear statement, though, that says this. Those guys aren't any better than anyone else who's a follower of Jesus Christ. They shouldn't be elevated to this place of where they're above everybody. But if you want to put them there, I love this. If you want to put them there, they agreed with us. So... It would have been real easy for Paul right there to said, yeah, they are the best. They are the greatest. They are the final word. And they took our side. Case closed. Paul is saying, no, they're, they're, they're humans. They're men of God. They are to be respected. They're not to be worshipped. They're not to be put up on this pedestal where you look at them rather than look at God. Everybody that's around you that's a, 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 a Christian, Christian leaders, I, I'll put myself in this category. I'm here to help you, to aid you, to encourage you. But the reality is don't look at me. Look at God. I'm going to do the best job that I can. I'm never going to try to be a stumbling block. But you can't look at a person. But kind of quoting Paul's story here, if you do want to get a person's opinion, I think you're pretty good. Paul shows appropriate respect for the leaders, in my opinion. He doesn't put them on a pedestal, but he does look to them as leaders of the church. The church leaders didn't add anything to Paul's message. They said, you've got it right. You know, that's interesting to me because I, almost anytime time you talk to somebody, you go, okay, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. But I'm doing blah, blah, What do you think? Almost always, all of us, because we feel like we have to say something, well, it's really good. I only have one suggestion though. That's kind of the way we approach it. I think it's interesting. They didn't add anything. They didn't say, well, change this or maybe use these words instead. They said, You got it. You got it. Paul, you are on the mark. And it's not the word's not in there, but the 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 feeling is in there. The church leaders joyfully recognized different assignments without competition or comparison. And so they say, we believe Paul that you are the apostle for the Gentiles even as Peter has been the apostle to the Jews and God is using both of you to advance his kingdom. One to this group, one to this group. We're not in competition. We are in cooperation and together we advance the kingdom of God. I love that. Now I love what it says, James, Peter, and John; those reputed to be pillars gave me and Barnabas. I just love this phrase. Not every version had it, but I want most of them do. Gave us the right hand of fellowship. Isn't there something warm about a handshake? Now you know that in olden days you probably know this. Maybe you don't. If you don't, I'll tell you right now. The reason that we use the right hand is because most people in ancient civilizations were right-handed. Uh, I happen to be this-handed. If you've ever noticed this is the one that flies up I'm left-handed I could have been really devious back in the day because the reason they shook right hands is because that was the hand of action for a knife later on in life a gun a sword or whatever and so by putting their right hand out they're saying I am extending to you my power and therefore I'm expressing my trust and friendship to you Now, somebody like me could say, problem is I'm left-handed. But the right hand of fellowship, right hand speaks of this this connection, this warmth of relationship. And then it, it, it is anchored through another word, the right hand of fellowship. It's like they said come in you're one of us you're part of us can you imagine how this must have felt to Paul who was the chief leader against Christians who had them uh, put to death and now here are the leaders of the church saying welcome we're extending our hand to you as our brother in Christ I love that after they did that, that um, they said, you need to go back to the Gentiles and we'll go to the Jews. Let's all preach Jesus and see if we can win the world with the gospel. Powerful, powerful. And then kind of it was like this little side note ending. They said, oh, by the way, just remember the poor. And Paul said, that's the very thing that I'm eager to do that's why a part of I'm coming here right now to remember the poor I want to encourage you to recognize your place in God's kingdom your role your purpose you have one and if you're not fulfilling it there's an incompletion in the body well I'll leave it for someone else to do can't do that they have their assignment. So if you're not doing your assignment, they're going to have to try to do both. How many of you know that doesn't work too well? Anybody in here ever play baseball or softball or ever watch it? Any baseball players, softball players? Can you imagine trying to field a team with, with seven players in the field? You gotta decide first of all, okay, who are we gonna, where are we gonna put whoever, and how are we gonna work this out? Well, hopefully we may not need a second baseman today. How many of you know if you're on the opposing team, you begin to salivate? Maybe we'll do without a center fielder and scoot the guy from left over, and the guy from right over. And if you're coming up to bat against those guys, you're thinking, this is awesome. There's so many holes in the field. So many places to hit the ball. I don't have to be that as good today as I normally would have to be and I can still get a hit. Listen to me. When we don't take our role, whatever your role is, when you don't fulfill your design by God in the kingdom of God, the devil begins to salivate. And he said, my job's easier today. They're not fielding a full team. Let me flip the coin. What if you went up to bat and there were 14 infielders and 32 outfielders? You would think, there's no way in the world I could get a hit today. The only thing I can hope to do is knock it over the fence and they probably got 10 guys out there to catch it. Wouldn't it be great if we could make the devil have that attitude about us? There's no way I can stop a YSO First Assembly. They got they got 42 guys in the infield and 83 in the outfield and then they got they got 150 outside the fence. If it goes over, they're gonna catch it anyway. Wouldn't it be great if we could rise up as the body of Christ and say where we are different makes us stronger, not weaker. As long as we're built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and faith in him and obedience to his word, accepting his grace, as long as we walk in that path, we're going to get the job done. Here's what grace requires. It requires you surrendering your life to God. It requires a personal encounter with God, a pers- you meeting him, divine revelation that leads to transformation. Then God uses our differences to f- fulfill our function. Remember the poor. Let me give one illustration. I could give 50, but I, I, I don't. Time is getting away, and I, I got to get this wrapped up. Well, let me give you this one point. Remember the poor. Some of the poorest people financially and resource-wise that I've ever seen in my life, I met about eight years ago in La Saba, Nicaragua. They don't have anything. Talking like to our missionaries the other day, they still don't have electricity in their community. They have water sometimes, and it's sort of clean. Until a few years ago, they didn't have access to medical care. Not only medical care, but Body and will be back with us in about six weeks, and they'll tell you more of the story then. Not only they have medical care, but they also have a church there. And, and this is so cool. The church was doing so well and growing so much in this little community that, that it was just block walls. Windows were holes, not glass. It's just kind of a hole in the wall. Oh, there's the window. Here's the door. It's a bigger hole. And, and I mean, just real basic. And Bonnie Levis told us they tore the church down to build a bigger one. Because you really couldn't add on to what they had It wasn't substantial enough to add on to. So they just said, let's knock it down and start over. They're building a bigger church. They're helping about 100 to 150 people every month with medical assistance that sometimes could be life-threatening. They're helping children. They're an incredible thing. On August the 14th, we're going to have a banquet and an auction. Tickets are $25 a person to come to it. We're gonna ask you to give an offering that night. How many of you know I try to be real clear about those things? Never surprising you with it. And if we had 365 people, that's every day of the week, give $200, that would meet the needs for the year for the clinic. And maybe you can't do 200, you can do a couple hours or half a day. Maybe you can do a week. Because it's not about equal giving about equal commitment I hope today my my desire my prayer on this day is that you would have a renewed passion to be an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ to let the word live in you to shine through you and let your actions validate the reality that you're a follower of Jesus Christ I don't know if you've ever done it before, if it's never happened in your life. I'd like for you to bow your heads and please respond. Please, If, at all, if y'all can, please do. I think it's important for you and it's a blessing for me to be able to, to connect with this kind of thing. If you guys could keep the lights up more in this moment, I would appreciate it too. Just keep on house lights up. If you would say today, Pastor, I am all in as a follower of Jesus Christ. I wanna do my part and fit in where he's designed me. We're not all the same, thank God. We don't all have the same experiences, thank God. Because of that, we're more diversified. We can accomplish more. How many of you join me today and say, Pastor, I wanna fill my role in God's kingdom. I wanna do my part to advance God's kingdom, to push back the forces of evil And I'm committed to working together to do all that God has for me to do. Would you raise your hand just real quick all across the room? That's me. I'm I'm in. I want to make a difference. I want to do my part. Would you stand with me, please, everybody? We try to do this most Sundays. If you need prayer today for anything, maybe it's salvation. You feel the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart saying, you need to make that commitment, make it public. You can come to the front and somebody will pray with you. If our prayer team could come right now. Maybe you're here today and there's physical need in your life and you need prayer and you want someone to join with you. Maybe there's a point of understanding that you need in life and you want someone to agree with you for God to reveal that to you whatever your need is in life right now, I want to invite you to come in just a moment. For those of you that remain in your seat, as we sing this song of worship and praise to God, will you let this be a moment of, of, of connection where you say, God, I'm all in. I'm following you with all of my heart. I want to play my role and do my part. If you need prayer today, I invite you to come right now. And as they're coming, would you join Pastor Russell as he leads us in a song of worship.